Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And we're back with the second episode of Life in the Stocks this week. Two episodes in a week. Uh, you've had a couple of weeks where you've had two episodes. Then last week we didn't have any. I'm kind of all over the place at the moment. Um, but lockdown being what it is, the interview schedule currently being what it is, fairly non-existent. I've had a lot of old episodes that I've just, you know, still had from from months back to get out. And then there's been others that have been coming through on the fly that feel relevant to the here and the now. Um, hopefully the last two episodes in particular, Jake Snufnarowski from Rocks Off and also Janie Starling from Dream Nails. They've been recent interviews, so we've been talking a lot about recent events, current events, what's going on in the world. Uh, there's quite a bit of that in this episode as well. In this episode... As you'll have read in the the title and probably gone, hmm, what's all this about then? Um, this is a little bit different to what we usually do. It's something a little bit special, a little bit out of the ordinary. Um, I'll tell you how it came about. So a couple of weeks back, I had a message from my dear friend, Jesse Leach, from the band Killswitch Engage. And I should point out, if you're here to hear an interview with Jesse, may I suggest you go back and listen to episode five of the podcast, which was put out about three and a half years ago now. That was the first time Jesse was on the show. That's a nice, in-depth, hour-long conversation that we have. And then also check out episode 75 of the podcast, which is the audio from the live Q&A, which me and Jesse did, and that's in two parts. So overall, there's about three hours' worth of interview with Jesse. In this episode, however, he interviews me. So if you want to hear Jesse's story, this isn't the one. But this is what happened. Jesse messaged me kind of out of the blue a couple of weeks ago and he said dude random ass idea that came to me this morning as i awoke it doesn't have to be me per se but how about you did a show where somebody interviewed you it could be a special edition where your listeners get to hear about your roots your reason for doing what you do and some of your stories just a thought i wanted to send your way hugs and love to you and i was like oh my god how humbling and 
amazing that one of my dear friends and somebody that I look up to and care about so much would take the time out in his head to think of that idea and suggest it. And of course it was going to be him. He's not going to give me that idea and go, do you know what? I'm going to go get someone else. I was like, what an honor to be interviewed by, by one of my favorite people. So that's what happens in this episode. We sit down, we did a WhatsApp FaceTime call, and we spoke a bit about what's going on now and the world and our take on everything. Um, and then we segued into an interview where Jesse asks me questions about my life and the podcast and my inspirations. And it was really cool. I've done quite a few podcasts. I've been on about, I guess, about 10 at this stage. Um, there's loads out there. If you if you care and so desire, you can just go onto any podcast app, type in my name, and then as well as my show, you'll get all the other shows that I've been on. But this one was probably my favorite just because I look up to and admire Jesse so much and because I've interviewed him so many times. And it's always me peeling back the layers and, and getting to dive inside his head. And it was nice to kind of reverse that because there's this mutual trust and respect there. And I feel like it deepened our bonds. And, and we had a really good chat and not just because of me. You know, I'm not saying it's great because I'm great. Um, it's, it was just great because we, we've got a connection and, and we, we hit it off as we always do. And, and we, we uncovered some really cool stuff. Um, so I have to say a big thank you to Jesse for taking the time out to do this. The only thing I will say, I'll point out, um, is the, the audio from my end will be a little bit echoey because I forgot to tell Jesse that when you record these chats over the phone with your mic at each end, you have to listen to the person on headphones, not on loudspeaker, because then their, their audio bleeds into your mic. So Jesse's really clear and you'll hear him loud and clear. You'll hear me nice and loud and clear, but also you'll hear like a faint echo, which is me on the phone the other end. So hopefully that's not too distracting. I would recommend if you can just listening to it on like a phone or a hi-fi as opposed to on headphones. So um, then you'll get less interference. It'll be less trippy inside your brain because you'll be like, Matt seems to be everywhere inside me right now. Nobody wants that, <laughs> do they? Nobody wants that. So um, yeah, I'd say take out the headphones if you've got them on and just play it on your phone or on a hi-fi. That'll probably be a more enjoyable listening experience. Uh, one quick final thing before we get into it. I'm 75,000 words in to writing my book. Um, I am eight of the nine chapters down, so I've only got the final chapter left to go. Once I've done that, all I'll have to do is my introductions to each chapter and then the introduction to the book itself, and then I'll be done. And I'm so pleased with what I've got. We talk about the book in this chat as well, but I just wanted to say if you would like to, you can pre-order the book, which is out in September on Rare Bird, which is an LA publishing house, and I tell the story about how me and that imprint came to work together on this project um but yeah if you'd like to pre-order the book you can head to the link in my bio on my instagram facebook or twitter pages at matt stocks dj is the place to go and uh, yeah hit the link you can pre-order the book via those also check out the main rare bird website as well to see all their titles two bucks two books from keith buckley are on there keith gets a mention in this chat as well and uh, yeah there's something kind of special that i'm cooking up with both Jesse and Keith. So watch this space as well. But if you head to rarebirdlit.com, you'll see the uh, the full array and range of awesome titles on their website from everybody to, uh, everybody from, sorry, Keith Buckley. My mouth's gone really dry all of a sudden. You're hearing that. Sorry if that sounds horrible. Let's have a little Barocca break. Some people have coffee in the morning to get the old juices flowing. I have my bright red berry Barocca. 
Yeah, there'll be titles on the website from everybody from Chuck Palahniuk to Sean Penn, Keith Buckley, and many, many more. So please do head over to rarebirdlit.com and check them out. Uh, an amazing company, so many great writers. It's a great imprint, and I am beyond thrilled to be working with them. And I'm beyond honored to be presenting this episode as well. Um, one of my dearest friends interviewing me on my show. What a trip life is how lucky i am um i do hope you enjoy this one here it is episode 168 of life in the stocks where jesse leach interviews me matt stocks your host enjoy it doing yeah good man you know i i um i can't complain the the world's a mess especially in our country but um i have a lot of hope and uh, i'm doing a lot of things i'm working with some cool people i'm working with some organizations behind the scenes and um i feel like i'm kind of doing my part so it helps a little bit to sleep at night but there are good days and bad days you know as with anything i love that you and rob flynn have connected and hooked up because he's for me, somebody who's so, uh, I mean, I'm not like a massive Machine Head fan musically, but as, as a person, I really like his stance on everything, on music, on people, on uh, attitude and politics. Yeah, he's, 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 he's definitely uh, switched on and paying attention. And I like, for me, what I like about him is the fact that he... Um, He's using his platform, you know, and and honestly, like yeah. I I put up a post this morning, and I kind of feel like there's not a lot of people in the metal community really sort of standing in solidarity with what's going on. It's almost as if people are afraid to speak on it because they feel like I don't know what it is. Honestly, I just feel like a real sort of um, people are afraid to talk right now because they don't want to offend anyone on either side. And like for me and him, we're both one of those people. Like, yo, stand up for what's right. It doesn't matter if people get offended. The people who are going to get offended to, to the stuff that I'm saying, for example, they're showing their true colors. I'm not afraid exposing those types of people. That's what this is all about, raising awareness. Like, you know, we got to start standing up for the people whose voices have been, like, squashed. And, and they've been submitted into living a certain way. Just because you don't see it because of the way that you live doesn't mean that you can't stand up and stand behind this cause of people who are saying, hey, this keeps happening. This isn't just a one-time thing. This keeps happening. We, you have to like let them have the platform, and I don't get it. I just don't get why that's not happening more. I think as well. Let's be honest. The stakes are no longer that high that you're going to risk being thrown off your record label or dropped by a management company. Like those days are over. So actually, now, you know, I don't think any, unless it's something really not right on like unless you say or do something really horrible yeah that it's actually, that it's actually your fan base that stands up and says i'm i'm done with 
any support of you. Like bands now are the ones. I mean, I trip out on this, right? Because and this might be a slight tangent, but my experience is the the press side of things. And what I see now is that any radio station, magazine, TV channel, whatever that used to be like the thing that broke bands, now I see them as actually being less relevant than the bands themselves in terms of followers and numbers. And it's almost like they rely on the numbers that the the bands have now to get them readership and subscription. And and so those those days of artists being beholden to the gatekeepers are gone. So there's no reason for anyone to be, I don't think, silent and quiet when it comes to stuff like this to risk rocking the boat. It's like, no, rock the boat. It's not going to damage your career because that that I think that day is gone personally. And, and thank God it is. Because it's like, people, yeah, if you're an artist and you have a platform, you should be using that, as you say, to be honest, be truthful and stand up for what you believe in, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I love the, someone said to me recently, like, this is what Joe Strummer was training us for, you know, and I, I you know, me and Joe Strummer, I have such a love for him. It's, and it's great because, you know, my, my thing with Rob from Machine Head will, will, um, will drop tomorrow and it's going to be, oh, a, wow, cool. it's going to be a bomb, you know, and um, I'm proud to be a part of it because we are using our platform. We are using our money to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and you know, rock and roll, punk, I, you could just say rock and roll, period. We don't have to go into punk. Yeah. Rock and roll yeah. should be the revolutionary voice. It's supposed to stir things up. So how are bands hiding behind weird political agendas and not speaking up? And fans are okay with that. It's just this really weird time we're living in where, you know, you and I have spoken enough so you know how I am and who I am and where I come from. I'm baffled. I'm like, why is this not more of a thing that we're talking about as a community. You know, yeah. metal, for example, is like this rebellious, like, badass, like, and, like, it's so quiet right now. It's so quiet. It's deafening. And there's more reason than ever to be pissed at the world. Yes. And yeah, Which where is that rage? Show you how... <laughs> it's like on the internet going, ah! It's, yeah, it just goes <laughs> to show you how crucial it is right now for us to use our voices. So I want to segue into my interview with you on this. I like where we're heading because this is, this is kind of where I want to start with you. You've always been someone who, you're very natural at what you do, which I, that's why I've always been a fan from day one when, when you, even back in, you know, when you were working for the big, uh, the big corporations, you still had a genuineness about you. And what I love about you is you are connected to the culture. You're not some guy who this is their job and, you know, because I've done plenty of those interviews where I'm in the same room with someone and I know they don't care. They're just doing their job. It's a run-of-the-mill thing. The questions are not um, interesting. Where you, you, it's like you, I'm sure you do your research, but I feel like there's a part of you, and correct me if I'm wrong, a part of you that this is a natural thing that you do. You're naturally a curious observer. And you are naturally embedded in the music culture, the comedy culture, you know, um, cultural with like movie, the people you've interviewed that are in movies and TV shows. There's always a culture attached to it. You're always pushing culture forward in your interviews and the way you carry yourself. It's really compelling to listen to and it's very admirable as an artist to see how, you, how you've done that. Do you think that, are you conscious of that or do you think that just kind of comes naturally to you? As, as you know, someone who's an interviewer as well as sort of, in many ways, a social commentator and uh, an observer as well. Thank you, first of all, dude, for um, all of that and everything. Like, and this. 
taking the time to do this. There's certain people in my life that I value the opinion of so highly, and and you're one of those. So um, yeah, hats off, hats off to you, my brother. And any any uh, form of I don't want to say praise, but observation like that validates what I do more than you'd ever know. And in terms of like the root of it and where it comes from, I remember, and this is a weird reference, but I remember being about five years old and watching Mary Poppins. And there's the character in that movie, Michael Banks, who's the little kid. And there's just a scene when he's walking along like a roadside and he's got one foot on the curb and one on the street. And he's kind of like hopping as he walks along this road. Yeah. And it's one of my weirdly earliest memories. And I just remember thinking, oh, the next time I walk down the street, I'm going to walk like that. And then I was like, oh, mum, by the way, can I also get like one of those little flat caps that he wears? And, and I was super like drawn in and fascinated by cinema from day one like my earliest memories are all film related before my first kind of uh interactions with my family or the world it was always ah i remember watching the wizard of oz and it was always musicals so there's always been like this kind of synergy between cinema and music for me but it was always musicals and i just remember watching those movies as a kid and being i guess transplanted to this total alternative reality and it wasn't that my reality was so bad but there was certainly some stuff going on at home for me from quite a young age that was troubling and unsettling and heartbreaking and whatever way i could escape from that i'd try and sort of lose myself in that and i think like a lot of these people like you and me um you latch on to something that gives you a better version of what's not in front of you in the here and the now so I was about four or five when I had a sister who was born, uh, sadly with like a disease, and then, and then she passed away and she died about three or four weeks into her life. So it wasn't a miscarriage or a stillbirth. She was born, she was alive, but she was born with a kind of a, a, a sickness. And then she died and we had to have you know a funeral service and she was gone and stuff. And then after that, that's when my mum kind of was consumed by the bipolar disease which kind of then took over for about 20 years on and off so around the time i was beginning to form an opinion and a, an awareness of the world was when all this was going on as well so i was like oh my god cinema art theater yeah music these these are forms of escape where i can kind of drift off into these worlds and escape the and it wasn't a horrible reality so i don't want to like make it sound like it was worse than it was and everybody has their their pain obviously but for me it was like oh man home is home's a little bit dark right now and yeah. this technicolor adventure to the land of oz seems like where i want to be so let's yeah. lose myself in that so i don't know whether this answers in any way shape or form your question but i think for me i've always been drawn to stories and storytellers i was gonna say that that makes total and, sense and and so that's where that I can't fake it and it isn't a job for me and you're right like I'm obsessed with the background and the context and the the inspiration and the meaning behind it and what was going on on the set of the Wizard of Oz like that's what I then became obsessed mm. with I was like you've got 200 dwarves on this film set which is obviously a fantasy film but that's not a normal scenario so imagine what was going on on that film set when they're filming we are the lollipopkin yeah. <laughs> like imagine being a fly on the wall for those shooting days yeah and I think super early on as well i was like wow i want to get to know the behind the scenes stories of what went on um 
And so, yeah, in a long roundabout way, maybe that answers the question. Yeah, I don't it does. Know. And, and, and <laughs> you might have to reel me in with this as well, because my yeah. mind at the moment, I haven't done anything like this in a while because I've just been for two months at my computer writing. So my, my social skills might have uh, dilapidated. Yeah, you're making this too. You're ma- <laughs> Matt, you're making this way too easy. This is easy. Um, honestly, um, so I, I want to... I'm just I'm going off the cuff here. I didn't prepare. I didn't write questions. And I figured we could just do this off the yeah. cuff. So so you mentioned the word escape a lot in what you just said. And I really latch onto that because I can relate to that very much so. You know, having a different childhood than you did, but I still ran to things like movie and theater, which is actually theaters where I got my start too. Um, actually acting. But escape, I think is a really poignant word that you said. And I think it really dials into the type of person that you are. And I think that's why we get along so well, because we're very similar with that sort of empathy. You know, you, when you meet somebody, you're, you're equally invested in them, if not more so in what they're thinking, how they're feeling. And that comes across as well in your interviews. You're very self-aware, but you're also very, well, <laughs> very hyper aware <laughs> of, um, of the person you're interviewing. And I guess the way to tie that into to the word escape and how I think I can run with, with what you're saying now is, do you think that there was a certain magic to, to rock and roll, to music, to the lifestyle of a musician or, a, a, or an artist, where I think of like the movie Almost Famous, you know, the way that that movie was created, it really drew you into the innocence of that young reporter. He was so caught up in the magic of it. You can see it in his face. The actor really drives that across. Like, And I remember theater, going to see my first play or going to see my first live show with like a production. There was a real sense of wonder and magic in that. And it did feel like an escape from reality. Even though it was, we were all in the same room. All these humans are in the same room experiencing the same thing. It's reality. But it feels like an escape because... It's an elevated form of reality. And I think that's why music, you know, comedians that you've interviewed, which I love that you do that as well, um, actors, uh, activists, whatever, they're all sort of cut from the same cloth and they all do sort of produce a fantasy type reality that helps you forget about your problems and immerses you into their art. So I would assume that maybe that feeling that you had of escapism drew you into these particular cultures of whether it was music or whatever the case may be. And I can relate to that as well, because before I became a musician, that's what drew me to these things. It was a a hyper reality. It was a magical thing for me. So maybe speak on your first experience of like seeing a live band or, or being backstage for the first time with someone before you interviewed and, and how that sort of ties into like how it hooked you in, you know, how it made you want to continue to do what you do. All of that came way later for me. Uh, the kind of insight into the industry came so much later. I wasn't about 24, 25 until that world revealed itself to me. For me, I remember almost, not to the date, but to the moment, the day my life changed, is we'd been set this task in music class at school, and we had to replicate our favorite album cover. It's like a simple, basic task when we were like 12 years old. And I was seeing these words, N-O-F-X, written around everywhere at school like on the on the walls on people's yeah. t-shirts and this was like 97 so it was just after that explosion of green day offspring rancid 
what I thought at this point was Norfolk's, but actually I would later learn was no effects. And, and then new metal was popping as well. So you had Corn and Coal Chamber and System of a Down and Limp Bizkit and all these bands, Deftones. And that was exactly my era, like mid-90s, alternate explosion. Yeah. I yeah. missed grunge, but I was right there for the punk rock and the new metal thing. And we got set this task to go and replicate our favorite album cover. And I was like, well, I want to make this a statement of who I'm going to be from now on because I haven't yet got my favorite album cover. I don't own it. I didn't have an older brother. My parents were into music, but records weren't really around in the house. So I was like 14 before I'd even been to a concert or found that band that defined where I was at and who I wanted to be. And I was on the search. I had it in cinema and I felt this escapist connection to movies, but I was yet to find my place in the music world. And it was all around and it was the best time to be young. And it's pre-internet, so you can't just go and Google it and look it up. You've got to investigate and see these words. So I kept seeing N-O-F-X everywhere. And so I went into HMV. It's a record store or was a record store in the UK. It might be gone now uh, as everything else is. And there were so many albums. And I was like, well, which one do I get? And I just remember seeing this cartoon composition of a live record. I heard they suck live. It was done by that famous artist, Coop, who did loads of gig posters in the 90s. And yep. it was like... A guy, it was a speech bubble coming out of his mouth and it just said, I heard they suck live. And it was this live record. And I went, well, let's go with that because they didn't have a greatest hits album at that point. So I thought this will be the best kind of cross representation of everything they've done up until now. Yeah, yeah. So I went home and I put this live album on and dude, it was like, I'm going to steal this phrase directly from my friend Casey Chaos because it's the greatest phrase I've ever heard. But it was like staring into the gaping hole of God's ass. It was like a whole new... <laughs> alternate reality just revealed itself to me and they were like encouraging the crowd to berate them they're referencing drugs they've got a song called kill all the white men and then another song called don't call me white and then like a hardcore song about being a hasidic jew and they're like introducing politics and race issues and like crazy adult concepts that are so far beyond my 12-year-old brain. Yeah. And they're delivering, with, they're delivering it with comedy and self-deprecation and sarcasm and biting, scathing wit. But then they're also downplaying how talented and intelligent they are. And that was exactly at the same time that South Park started becoming a thing as well. And I've always likened No Effects, Fat Mike and Trey Parker and Matt Stone and South Park and Team America and the Book of Mormon and all those things together because what they've always always done is expose the hypocrisy in the left as much as in the right yeah yeah balanced yeah and, and, and these gets creative a, people gets revealed this world to me where it was like yeah i'm liberal and i'm left-wing and i'm right on i'd like to think but also there's a lot of bullshit that comes with that world too and just because you're a quote-unquote lefty that doesn't make you a good person anymore than somebody who might be a Republican is still a good person in their heart. Yeah. It's all about how real you are, how authentic you are, and how much fun there is to be had um, at the expense of hypocrites in the world. And I guess that was my absolute technical dream kind of introduction. I went from Kansas to the land of Oz in that one record. Mm, like just that. like, this is, this is what it's all about. Comedy, politics, a sense of hu like humor and fun partying and it, I, my my adult brain and psyche was born the moment i first heard that album by no effects and from there that's when i then discovered buzzcocks clash sex pistols yeah. stooges they were like the, they were sort of your gateway drug and i love that because it's, it's social commentary if, i think as a whole if you were to cap it at that like i think 
and I can relate to that too, because I have a similar story with the Dead Kennedys. I think the Dead Kennedys were my first group that sort of, because for me it was minor threat, the heavy stuff, the angry stuff, and then discovering Dead Kennedys and seeing the sarcasm and the comedy. And it was the same thing with Dead Kennedys for me. Like I bought a VHS tape of them live. And not only could I hear what they were saying and the way they interacted with the audience, but I could see the goofiness of Jello Biafro and the sar- sheer sarcasm and genius of that. It's funny you mentioned South Park too, because um, I had never really gotten into South Park till fairly recently. Don't ask. I'm me. not a cartoon guy, and I never really yeah. was, but I just love their worldview. Yeah, I love their take on current issues and everything. It's genius, they just, really. They, they call it like it is. It's yeah, so it's well genius. informed and so objective. And so scathing, but only when it needs to be. Like, it was never mean. The butts of their joke were never like, oh, let's laugh at the person who's less fortunate than us. You know what I mean? It was never mean-spirited humor. It was always just very, very, like, morally right on. You could get behind every joke and be like, yeah, I I side. Not only do I find that funny, but I side with that worldview. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny because I I just recently started to binge watch that during quarantine, actually. uh, A little bit before it, but definitely during quarantine. And um, everybody gets some. Everyone gets a shot. They don't leave any. And I love it. And it's funny. That, that's it, isn't it? Everybody get. If you if you fuck up, <laughs> then you're due like a roasting. But it'll be done with, you know. I mean, wh- whatever you do, that's what you'll get in return. And that, that's what I love about it as well as they never. Because we're in this culture now. Not to kind of jump all over the place too much, but we're very much in this culture now where it's like if you fuck up once then that's it. Forget about it. Game over. Yeah. And I feel like actually we need, although we need to call out stuff which is wrong and systematically evil and needs to change, there's also this element of, well, people make mistakes. And sometimes you need to understand that they've made amends for that mistake or tried to rectify that past ill and have grown and evolved and changed. And actually we can't just write someone off for one thing that they did once upon a time. Do you know what I mean? Because the world isn't black and white like that. So, so that that being said, um, yeah, and I I agree. There there definitely needs to be room for people to uh, to be able to make mistakes and bounce back from them. Uh, and that brings to mind like some controversial uh, uh, interviews you've done. Well, one in particular, which I'm really curious to hear <laughs> to hear about. Um, when you when you knew that you were going, and assuming you had done it before, I'm not sure, but Gene Simmons comes to mind because I remember he was <laughs> he was one of the guys that I remember you talking to me about it, like oh, I did it, but I'm not sure. And you've been in in rooms with some interesting characters, and he, he pops into my head. How do you get yourself ready for, or do you even try to get yourself ready for somebody like a Gene Simmons, for example? He's he's one that really sticks out in your catalog, and I think you really navigated him really well. I was impressed with the way you did it. Uh, what goes through your mind when you're getting ready for that type of a, of an interview? I love that you listened to that one and and took something positive away from it because it was a difficult one, and it coincided with a point in time. I think when I was going to put that episode out was just when the Me Too movement was beginning. To I remember, gain real yeah, momentum. I remember. And I lined up with iTunes, a homepage feature, and it was episode 50, so it's going to be like a landmark number in my catalog. And it was going to be this big celebratory, defining kind of halfway point towards the 100 number where it's like, boom, there's this world international rock star. He's my guest on the show. It's a great chat. I'm really proud of it. It's all set to hopefully, you know, expose me to all new, new numbers and listening figures and stuff. And then... Boom, this woman comes out and she's like, right, Gene Simmons in this interview that we did placed his hand on my leg in an inappropriate way. 
And then that gets construed as sexual battery, was I think how the, the, the news media portrayed it. Yeah. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> well, I can't run that because I don't know how this is going to pan out. Right. And, and, you, and you also think, well, this is a guy that has throughout his career openly, uh, I don't know, celebrated how many women he has or hasn't supposedly slept with. Yeah. And the thing with people like Gene, I find, is he's never been a hypocrite. Mm. For whatever his flaws or his mistakes or his ills, Gene Simmons, what you see is what you get. Gene Simmons will never present himself as one version and then be something else behind that. Right. And he has a phrase which he says to me, and I've interviewed him so many times now, and I love the guy. I think he's hilarious. I think he's highly self-aware that he doesn't get enough credit for. I think he's actually comedically genius, and he, he kind of inhabits this character. Also, he's kind of punk rock. People might totally disagree with that because he's kind of the embodiment of capitalism. But he also really doesn't give a fuck about what anyone thinks about him. And that, for me, is kind of punk rock. But he has this phrase, to thine own self be true. And that's kind of how he lives his life by. And I respect that because, for me, there's a lot of people out there who present themselves as these righteous individuals but then actually behind closed doors, they're the ones doing the most morally questionable, depraved, you know, count, counteractive, hypocritical, horrible stuff. And their, their private persona is very different to their public. Whereas at least Gene's like, I've slept with 10,000 women and I love money and I'm in kiss <laughs> and we're amazing. You know? And he, he's, he's so unashamedly who he is. Yeah. And I'm like, you can't argue with that. And every time I've interviewed Gene, I've gone into it excited and just reveling in the chaotic nature of what i know is about to unfold yeah, I interviewed yeah. him once at download this used to be on youtube but when scuzz closed down they removed all the videos sadly but we're in this porter cabin at download before kiss are about to headline and gene's there the camera crew's all set up i'm getting ready to interview him and he just brings like a family in and he's like oh well, this is and he's basically like had some fan pay for a meet and greet and brought them along to our interview shoot so we're like gene can you not like ask these people kindly to wait outside so he can get these? He's like, no, no, they paid to meet me, Gene Simmons. The pleasure is all theirs, obviously. And I'm just like, oh my God, and you just have to roll with it. So he sits down and I go, Gene, uh, I want to tell you just from, from the bottom of my heart, the second best show I've ever seen at Download Festival was Kiss in 2008. Second best. About, uh, about, to, about to launch. And I go, the second best, the best was ACDC at Download, 2010. What have you got to say to that? And the cameraman didn't know I was going to ask this question, but at that moment, and this is when you know you're always working with really great people who can work on the spot, he zoomed in close up on Gene's face, and Gene's bottom lip started quivering. <laughs> and he went, without missing a beat, he goes, well, I'd like to remind ACDC that it was in fact Kiss that took them out on their first ever American tour. <laughs> and he started going into this whole tirade about how Kiss had sold more records and all this. And I'm just in tears, just like, how can you not love this guy? He is so obsessed with stats and figures and achievement and success. He's a comedy character. He's a cartoon character. He's a caricature. Uh, and he's, he's kind of a joke, but he's in on the joke. And he really doesn't care what you think. That being said, uh, he said some pretty harmful stuff about Robin Williams and about depression and suicide. And, and he's obviously said a lot of damaging stuff about women. And he's very blasé in his attitude and, and, and approach towards certain topics that you think, oh, you could have dealt with that a little bit better. But again, I think the world needs people like him. Yeah, I think you're to right. Keep us on, is, to keep is, us on our toes. Yeah. 
it is refreshing to to have somebody sort of speak their truth, even if you don't agree with it, and to to not hide behind something. You're right. I, I would I would much rather deal with somebody who I completely disagree with, and we both see eye to eye on our disagreements, than somebody who is pretending to be something they're not. I think that's a snake. Yeah, that's a lot harder of a road to navigate because deception. Deception is just, uh, it's really hard to get to the bottom of somebody's personality. And um, so, yeah, so that being said, that's, uh, and first of all, I love it. Now it makes me want to go and re-listen to that interview um, with him. <laughs> uh, another one. What, 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 was, what was crazy, though, is that we actually spoke about another allegation in that interview. Mm. Because I was chatting to her and I said, I was like, Gene, does it not concern you that your legacy is kind of being overshadowed and sullied by all the controversy that surrounds you? you know, in, in your personal life and with the things you say and the things that you've done. And, and he was like, look, you know, I am who I am. I'll go to the grave happy. But then he also, he, he proceeded to read me these series of texts on his phone in the interview. And his manager's in the room and he's going like this. He's going, don't do it, don't do it. And he's going, I'm getting the sign, but I'm going to tell you anyway. And he's going through all these texts that he's received. And it was basically this, so he, he's like, I went to a, a Scooby-Doo voiceover. <laughs> and so he's doing this Scooby-Doo voiceover. And apparently he was inappropriate to a woman in a corridor. But actually the guy who hired him to do the job was like, well, I was with you the whole time and I didn't see you do anything. And I do think, although you should always believe victims and thank God that now that is happening, I do think in the wake of the Me Too movement, there was also this kind of backlash. Well, not not perhaps backlash, but there was a splinter element of that movement where it was open season for anybody who'd been a bit pervy to be called to task yeah for any slight misdemeanor that they'd perhaps done knowingly or not and he was a prime candidate to be taken down for that because he's like i'm the guy that sleeps with everyone yeah and so i think a lot of the stuff that he got was a bit a bit perhaps unfair yeah no and you're right it goes back again to saying that's the kind of times we're living in you know it, there's two sides to every story. There's two sides to every movement. And it's hard to like fully get behind something knowing that there's always a slant. There's always a slant. And that's why, you know, nowadays na- navigating social media is, is difficult because you need to be careful. You can't just say 100% this or 100% that because there's so much gray area and so much deception. But uh, yeah, I think as far as, you know, interviewing people being in the same room with them there's a certain aura or an energy that people put off and uh, i'm sure you've noticed that you know one interview too that comes to mind is um with uh, jesse hughes from eagles of death metal in the wake of everything that happened i almost felt like there was an air in the room and i almost felt like i was in the room because i remember listening to it in a dark drive home in my car and you could almost cut the tension initially in that interview with a knife, but it turned into such yeah. a, it, to me, it turned into such a really kind of a positive thing. How do you, how do you spin that? I mean, are you, when you walk into these types of interviews and obviously you've been doing it for a long time, but is there, how are your nerves? Are you still sort of, do you have to sort of prep yourself? Do you have to hype yourself up? How do you learn how to navigate that kind of energy? Cause you've put yourself into interesting situations where it's not a fluff interview and you ask the questions that a lot of people don't ask and you do it in such a way that it feels really thought out. But I also know you and know you well enough to know that you just wing stuff too. So what is, what's, what's the process of going into a room like that with that interview, for example? That was one of the most daunting ones that I've ever done just because of the backstory and the weight that came with it. 
And also, I felt like I had a responsibility to try and portray what I know to be the positive side of Jesse's character. Right. Because after what happened in Paris, he obviously said and did all kinds of just really ill ill advice. You can't even say that. Whatever judgment you have on that guy, the dude stood on a stage and watched his fan base be mowed down by automatic weapons. Yeah, I can't even imagine. That That's beyond... The only people who know how that feels are soldiers who fight in wars. And right. that's it. It's beyond anything me or you hopefully will ever, ever have to try and wrap our fucking brains around. It's so dark and so heavy and so painful. And so anybody that has an opinion on that guy because of things he said or done, I'm like, you need to fucking take a look at yourself because where's your empathy? Where's your understanding? We all, when we're in pain lash out and say and do dumb things yeah and, and i could but i think those things in that interview you really brought i think it ended off on a really like i left that interview listening to that interview like yeah i get it i feel like it you really sort of helped bring that to the surface and and lead him to say some really cool stuff and you just navigated it so well and i, I guess the the main drive that i wanted to get and why i even wanted to do this because i'm just so curious about people like yourself and and again you know i've done so many interviews with so many different people and there are certain people that just have a knack for it and i feel like you are just one of those people that you were almost like born to do this shit which is kind of crazy because how does one get to that point where you are able to navigate all these different types of people and be in the room with and in odd situations with sound checks going on there's pressure to like to get it done like and you put it all out there for the audience to hear you don't edit it out so if shit's going yeah, that's, on, that's one of the things that I try and I don't make a point of reinforcing that, but I think people who listen enough and for long enough know like this is gonzo journalism. You're going to get yeah, the record button. That's a, that's a great way to hit, put it. Yes. And then that just the conversation unfolds and what happens happens. And then at the end, it ends and that's it. And I, I mean, if you're done with asking the question, if I think what the question is, it's like, what mindset do I go into these situations with? Yeah, how do you handle it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm trying to think in my own head because I've never really addressed it myself, but I'm trying to sort of go back in time and figure out where the root of it starts. But I think I've just always, because of my interest in cinema and music and literature and theatre and art and then life and people, I think because of my, my upbringing and the the gnarliness that was going on at home, I saw that the world wasn't black and white. Like, I don't want to go too much into it maybe now, um, but my dad kind of did some regrettable stuff that I saw him do. And it took me a long time to forgive him for that. Um, And it caused a lot of problems in my relationship with him. But as time evolved and I evolved, and then he was there for my family in other situations where we needed him, I actually saw that it's not all black and white. Life is gray and we're all good and bad and we're all flawed. And so I think from as far back as I can remember, I was always just interested. I mean, interested isn't even enough of a word. I was like fascinated with people and our demons and our flaws and our struggles and our dreams and our aspirations. And... Somewhere along the line, I ended up doing journalism as a job. And we'll just jump over all of that and say, I'm in it and I'm working on Kerrang and I'm hosting a radio show. Yeah. 
and that and that comes with this great perk which is that you get to interview people and and that's all fun but i always just remember being like well i don't i've got no interest in asking this guy what the new album is all about unless it's been informed by something really really profound right i'm not interested in what the studio process was like or how tours going or these mundane obvious questions that are often asked of people like yourself but i would see getting asked all the time how are you what's your favorite sandwich i'm like that there's a time and a place perhaps for that throwaway whimsical kind of content but for me even when i was first starting on kerrang which is a commercial station and you'd have ad breaks and i was taught like the longest interview you should put out is three minutes that's it you get to the meat and bones of it and i'm like three minutes yeah, I mean, and I, and I have actually gone into the hardcore meat and bones of a conversation in the opening three minutes in some of my podcasts. Like I had Stephen Graham, who plays Combo in This Is England, crying in the opening three minutes of the podcast that we did. And so you, I can get there. But for me, it's like the magic happens sometimes 45 minutes in when the person's finally their walls take, are down, take, yeah. taken off. Yeah, the, the guards down. Yeah. They're finally comfortable. And that's when you perhaps get the first glimpse of truth and then from there you start building but for me when i go into these situations especially as you say if it's like out of venue or on a tour bus or in some cases at people's houses or i love it dude i thrive off like there's been times where i'll just be there with the mic set up in my hand like have you ever seen that guy nick broomfield's films like he did pack and biggie courtney and, uh, yeah. Court and oh, courtney yeah. yep. And his style's like that. He'll roll up with the boom mic, like rolling. And he'll just be like, the interview started. You're in it. Let's go. Yeah. And I, I've tried to use that approach to podcasts sometimes. Um, you know, each one requires its own subtle reading of the situation. But yeah, I've, I've always been of the opinion of like, whatever this moment is, is the truthful moment. And I'm not going to edit out the awkwardness. Or yeah. Like the, the difficult pauses. I'm like, let's capture all of it. And there's the Nick Oliveri episode for me springs to mind. That was like a real roller coaster. Um, there's another one I did with Brian Fallon, which got super awkward. Yeah. And I just kept that all in and rode it out. And then at the end, it feels like you've been on this, this kind of journey. And for me, that's when it's like I get something out of it. The guest does as well. And it's like, oh, we've shared this, this moment together that's real. It's tangible. It's not just... Q A Q A. See you later. Bye. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think that's probably why I was drawn to listening to your stuff in the first place. I mean, obviously, we got on really well when you interviewed me, but then when I was like, "Oh, I'm going to give these podcasts a listen," which prior to listening to you, honestly, I didn't listen to a lot of podcasts. You were kind of my gateway podcast. Um, I remember you shared episode two with yeah. Al Bar, and did that that brought so many new ears to my show so early on. I want to thank you for that. Of but course. Yeah, Al Bar was episode two, and you, I remember it as clear as day, because Steve-O was episode one, and he was like, yeah, dude, I'll share it. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> killer, Steve-O's going to share it. The show's going to like explode. I'm going to come out the gate really strong. Like, yeah, I'll share it, dude. And then he just didn't share it. So I was like, oh, man. So it got off to this kind of limp, slow start. Yeah. And then Al Bar was episode two, and you shared it. And you took a picture of yourself like in your car, and you wrote this like, you know, really well thought out, generous post about how interesting and engaging and amazing this conversation was. And the numbers like that day were like, like spiked up. And then you were on the show, like, I think two weeks later, yeah. for episode four or five, perhaps. And you were so supportive so early on and just seemed to get so early on 
Because even I at that point didn't know what the show was going to be about. Right. When we recorded our episode, the I show remember wasn't you, I remember you saying that too, yeah. It wasn't a show. It was just, I, I came to chat to you for like a Metal Hammer piece, I think. And I was like, because you were in Birmingham for two days because you were on that bullet tour. Yes. And you were like, well, I'm here tomorrow. If you want to come back, let's do this chat. And we did it. And even at that point, you know, it took me at least 10 interviews, I think, for me to figure out kind of where I wanted to go with it. I had a loose idea. I knew I just kind of wanted truth. That was the main benchmark is I just wanted to have truthful, honest conversations and not just PR driven staged interviews. Yeah, I think that speaks a lot to your character. And I think it also makes a lot of sense that you dip into your childhood a little bit and the stuff that you went through, which I assume will all be in your book. I, I don't know. I know some of the stuff is just audio excerpts, but I'm hoping that part of your book, you're able to tell your story a little bit, which I think is fascinating. And it actually makes a lot of sense as to why you do what you do and the way you do it. And I think that's why initially I was interested by all these things you're saying right now, because interviews to me, you know, the, the idea of listening to someone give an interview, quote unquote, never really interested me after doing hundreds of them. And like you go on these, press well, you learn, you learn to kind of loathe them, right? I imagine someone in your position, yeah. you're like, oh, press is like a chore. It is. No, it is. And nobody wants to do it. I'm always volunteering because I'm like, there are always these moments of clarity you can get through and, and have. And to me, I'm always message driven. You know I me. Mean? I'm just I there's always something to say. So I do all these interviews. I barely say no to them. Uh, just because I know there's going to be a moment somewhere with somebody who gets it, who can actually do the interview, and it turns into a conversation. And you're right, the QA, QA thing bores me to tears, especially when it's like, tell me the inspiration behind your new album. How's tour going? Like those kinds of questions, when they come up, it's like my toes curl up. And I'm like, I, <laughs> I would much rather... I saw that, man. I saw that really early on, not with you, but as a journalist myself. In fact, I never want to use that term in regards to me. I've never been that, like as, a, as an interviewer. I would see other interviewers ask those questions and you just see, as you say, the toe curling, recoiling, just like, oh, here frustrated we go. awkwardness. Yeah. Like, oh, really? I'm going to answer this again. Tour's going great. And it's like, oh, and that's not, you know, everybody has to start somewhere and everybody has to learn. And I think that if you're a young person starting out, then, you know, just go out there and ask all the questions yeah, and find your, dues, your own voice. But for me, I'd look at people who are like, you know, more senior to me and more, experienced and further along and more in the game and i'm like and you're still asking those same mundane redundant and i still see it now i'm yeah. like <laughs> thank god i'm not in a band and i don't have to go through that conveyor belt yeah I've, I've, be had, I've caught myself laughing when those questions are asked and i try to like just be polite and get through it but um going back to what you said earlier and i think this is really poignant too is like the storytelling you love storytelling and that's sort of what you enable with people and that's the one thing I'll, I will always take away from your podcast is you always get people to tell stories. And then I almost forget that this is sort of an interview. Uh, the case in point in one of my favorite episodes that you've ever done is Laura Jane Grace. Uh, I thought that what was brilliant in the storytelling and it just really because I wanted to understand what she was going through, you know, because as soon as people were talking about, you know, having the the you know, being a transsexual and like, it was sort of like an issue, but a non-issue, but I'm always sort of fascinated by it. And the way you navigated that and the stories that came out of it, and it was just such a brilliant podcast. Uh, and I think what's interesting about that one as well is right at the end, like an hour in was when we got to when she transitioned and came out. 
So it was almost like the whole conversation wasn't even really about that. It Which was about everything great, else. The and then I was like, oh shit, told, we're out of time. <laughs> yeah. But the stories that were told prior to that even coming up, it made you realize how much that's not the issue. So when yeah, these yeah. when these when these well, hot that was button issues come up and media and press always wanna like focus on these particular things that, you know, sell or or will make somebody tune in, for example. That interview made me realize, and I, I knew this already, but it sort of solidified the fact of like, the person's story is so much more important than the issue that might be the sort of the, you know, than the headline, the elephant in the room that ever, like, sometimes it's okay to just let that issue just lay and you'll get to where it is naturally. And that was such a natural, awesome interview about learning about her upbringing, about punk rock, about being a rebel, about you know, being an anarchist and then sort of changing your mind and just the growth, it all led up. So it was such a natural progression to get to that point. Uh, And, and I think that for me, that was a signature of you knowing how to allow someone to speak and not, you know, another thing that really irks the shit out of me is when people do interviews (laughs) and they constantly talk over the person and interject their own story over like, and it happens with some people. And I literally can't even listen to the podcast anymore because I'm just like, I didn't tune in to hear the interview tell their life story. I, I tuned in for your guest. You have a great way of doing that. Did that come to you early on? Were you always, I mean, cause I don't, I've never heard, all I've heard is your podcast. I've dealt with it before, but did you have to learn that the hard way or did that something, did you come into this like, I want this person to tell their story, so I'm going to be cautious about how much I talk. Did that, was that a natural thing for you or is that something you had to learn? It was a natural thing for me, dude. I think because I always knew who am I, you know, I was coming into this game with nothing but humility and respect for the people I was speaking to. And I think the minute you think you're even a fraction as interesting as your guest, regardless of whether or not you are, if you had come into it that approach, you've already ruined the whole craft like from the get-go. And I have no interest in anything you've got to say because otherwise, just have a podcast where it's just you and a mic and you spout your opinions and you share your stories. Do what Bill Burr does. He's got one of the greatest, funniest podcasts on earth and it's just him and a mic and he waxes and he gets into the zone and it's incredible and you want to hear Bill Burr because he's hilarious. But there's certain podcasts that I listen to as well and I'm like, man... You've got this amazing guest in the room and you're interjecting your own narrative into the conversation and overshadowing their truth, their story. The tightrope that I always try and walk is I'll give like tiny little snippets of my truth, my story, my background, just to make them feel comfortable and relate to me in a way that they know that we're both opening up and it's a two-sided thing. But I'll just give enough to them for them, sorry, to a kind of, I guess, feel at ease. And yeah. then I let them go. And that's the goal is I'm not there to go, oh, this is, the, I, you know, and we've had those moments where it's like there's shared experiences and I'll go, I've had this, but really what I want to know is your experience of this because you're my guest. Yeah, I think that's the, and then, si- and then the it's psychology. Give and take, of, right? Yeah, this is the psychology of, of empathy, sympathy, or what have you. Um, you know, opening somebody up and allowing them to feel safe to, to share or even get them on the wavelength of talking about that particular issue. And, and you and I shared the, you know, dealing with depression and bipolar and mental illness. And I think when you were telling me a little bit about your past, it really sort of made me want to talk even more about what I've gone through and, and my family and stuff. So I could totally see how that it's the psychology of, of, of body language, first of all, and then 
tone of voice, all of those things sort of play into, into why, you know, I think uh, your podcast and what you do is interesting and inviting. And I want to go back it's to It's also the... about, it's about sincerity as well, right? As you can, you can play that psychological trust game, but not come from an authentic place. So you can say, oh yeah, I had this thing. Tell me your story. But actually what you're trying to do is just extract some sort of scoop out of that person. Because there's people that do that as well. Whereas for me, is it's like, no, I want to make you feel comfortable and safe, but that's because you are. And it's ne it's never about trying to go after that juicy... Oh, yeah. Know, no, I've done interviews where that they... juicy they, yeah. headline. Yeah, or... yeah I've had... people it. do that too, and I see that, and I'm like, oh, man, like, that's the headline you're going to go with? And it's, it's hard for me sometimes because I'll take, like, one-minute audio, like, snippets from a show that I want to share on Instagram to get people excited about the episode and, right. and make them prick their attention and invest in it. But then you also don't want to like reveal too much of the, the core of the conversation in this little thing, because that's that kind of bite sizey clickbaity style of journalism that I hate as well, which is so overriding now. Like you see so many esteemed, established, respected websites and magazines and titles doing that going oh this person said this and everybody jumps in the comment section and it's like i hate that so much it's like yeah that's I why agree. i love podcasting it's like let's get into the i don't know there didn't even need to be a direction to the conversation let's just talk and see where it goes <laughs> and nine times out of ten well in fact maybe if i can be so arrogant 9.99999 times out of ten <laughs> i always get I always get the result that I want at the end, which is just a connection. Always. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's super important. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to talk about what you do and in regards to how you're getting through what's been going on between the pandemic and between... Just where this world is right now, how have you been able to keep your head above water? What is your frame of mind and what are your, your hopes for when we sort of transition into more of a quote unquote normal life? Where do you see yourself and what are your hopes for everything? Because I get that question occasionally on interviews. It's kind of a generic thing, but I'm also really interested in what you have to say about that. 
But it's also the age-old question, isn't it? Because traditionally, we're not necessarily confronted with that question in a ever-present, day-to-day, looming way. Right. You know, the meaning of life is an important philosophical question, which we should always be at least partially aware of as we go through whatever version of life we're in. But usually there's enough distractions and we're busy and we're productive and, you know, it's all happening. So we don't necessarily take those times to sit back and reflect and ask ourselves truly, why are we here? What are we doing? What is the end game? Right. And for me, like so the moment this lockdown hit was the week after my birthday. Thankfully, I'd just been to an amazing gig. I'd been to see Brian Ferry at the Royal Albert Hall. So that... That's like my last gig, which has been keeping me going because it was so epic. I'd never seen him before, growing up loving Roxy Music, so I kind of got that hit in that department. I also got to go to Edinburgh with my mum, dad, and sister for my birthday weekend and have a weekend with them. And then the following weekend, because I stretched out the celebrations over a whole week, I then got to go to Brighton and hire out an apartment and have like 12 of my oldest and best friends. And we just had like a raging party weekend in Brighton. So right literally before lockdown, I had every version of a kind of a last hoorah that anyone could hope for. I had a great gig. I had a family holiday. I had a session with all my friends. So I kind of was fulfilled and equipped and nourished enough to then go into my little cabin and hibernate away. And I did exactly that. Like I was so broken and battered from my like birthday weekend celebrations. I got back to London and even before lockdown was announced in the UK, I was like self-imposed lockdown. I'm going in. I'm absolutely fucking destroyed from this week of partying. I've had an amazing time. I can see this thing's coming, so I'm going to get ahead of the curve. So I got stocked up on food and kind of just healthy stuff. And I had two weeks just in my house, indoors, watching it unfold on the news, trying to figure out what comes next for me. Professionally, first and foremost, because you've got to figure out how am I going to pay rent? How am I going to exist financially? And we spoke pretty early on. So my first initial thought was like, right, I've got this Patreon page. I'm going to do a radio show every day. I'm going to call up a different friend, chat to them about their experiences of this, put out that show, and then encourage people to subscribe to this page, and then I can get by on that. And that served me for the first month. And I did, like, I did 21 shows in a row, so 21 days, wow. 21 different conversations, 21 different people all over the world. And so I got a real full, in-depth, objective perspective on the whole thing from everybody and that helped me feel really connected and really i don't know whether upbeat would be the right word but certainly like not not beaten down i was like there's hope for us yet we can get through this it's going to be okay and then i was like oh i can't just keep doing this because the i was hoping the patreon page was going to take off a lot more than it did yeah it didn't have quite the reaction that i wanted it to so i was like i can't invest all of my time into this because it's not doing what I wanted it to do, which is pay my bills. So now I need to figure out another way to make some money. And that was exactly when it coincided with this publishing house reaching out to me. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So that's brilliant. Talk about, I mean, I'll I'll come back to that in one second and tell the full story of that. But um, as soon as that became like an opportunity that was presented, I just went, boom, phone off, three weeks. Let's start developing this. Transcribed 15 uh, of my sort of favorite strongest interviews from the podcast sent that over to them I was like this is a flavor of what the book's going to be just to get them interested and then they were like right we're in and so i was like let's sign this contract let's make it legal let's make it official let's push forward and so then that 
then was like the, the new priority and objective was just let's just throw all my eggs in this basket because this is an amazing opportunity it's something i've wanted to do my entire life now is the exact right time to do it because i ain't going to be djing in any bars anytime soon yeah I'm not yeah gonna be going yep. on tour with any bands anytime soon i'm not going to be doing any live q and a's anytime soon so now is the time to just sit at home on my own and write and uh so just to backtrack real quick on my birthday on march the 11th on my way to see Brian Ferry, I went to go meet up with this American guy who'd emailed me thanks to our mutual friend Keith Buckley. Um, oh, right on. Who, so Keith, Keith is solely to, to thank. Oh, so it's his, to it's his book. To blame. Uh, the people that published <laughs> his book, yeah? Yeah, so he put out two books on their imprint, um, oh, right Watch on. and Scale. Okay, yeah. And we, we'd done a Q&A exactly in the same way as myself and you had. And he told the publishing house about this Q and A, uh, I guess, because it was quite book centric, and they listened to it. And I'd later find out the guy who runs that publishing house would listen to fifty episodes before meeting me. Oh wow! And he was in, like he was completely invested and behind. Like I, I'm pretty close with a lot of musicians and people like yourself that I've interviewed and spoke to over the years, yeah. and that for me is my like my reason for doing it you're my people yeah if i can say that without sounding too cheesy no, but yeah. <laughs> i've it. never i've never really not gotten on but i've never really had a healthy relationship with a lot of industry people mm. for whatever reason and they might say different things um to me but for me i've always just been the kind of black sheep in the music industry that's always been sort of pushed to the side and kept down I don't know whether it's because I get on well with bands and a lot of people don't like that. I don't know whether it's because I'm up, up front and outspoken and I don't play the game and they don't like that. I don't know what it is, but I've always just felt this kind of negative energy and tension with people of superiority in the music industry, in the, in the press, media, journalistic side. Right. And this guy, here's a guy for the first time in my life that was like, I run and own this publishing house that's put out these books by Keith Buckley, Sean Penn, who's my favorite actor of all time. Right on. Chuck Palahniuk, uh, all these authors and incredible writers. And this guy's legit. Like, he's got tattoos all over him. And he's a punk rocker. He's in, like, DIY hardcore bands in Minneapolis for years before getting into the literary world. Yeah. He's one of us. He's the real deal. And he was like, I love your show, and I want to turn your show into a book. So I met him on my birthday in London. He was in London for a literary event that got cancelled due to COVID and he had time to kill. And so he said, Keith, I'm in London. Who should I hook up with? And Keith was like, reach out to Matt. Here's his email. So I got an email from That's this brilliant. guy on my birthday. That's I went to brilliant. meet him <laughs> and he was like, have you thought about doing a book? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. And I started pitching him these ideas on the spot. Uh, and he was like, these are all good. Chill out. Uh, I thought we'd go more down the line of a podcast book because I've been listening to your show and I love it and I'm, I'm interested in putting one out mm. on my birthday. So I was like, boom. So I went into lockdown kind of panicking about how I was going to make money, but I had this thing in the back of my head. And then when the Patreon month didn't quite pan out in the financial way that I wanted it to, I was like, right, I need to follow up on this book thing now here. So I turned my phone off, spent three weeks writing, sent him like 20,000 words of stuff. And he was like, right, here's the contract, here's the deal, let's go. And for the last six weeks, um, all I've been doing, I've written 90,000 words, Jesse, in, in the last <laughs> six man. weeks. And so what, what this period has meant to me 
I've been trying to. This is me now trying to answer your question. I've been trying <laughs> to keep. I've been trying to keep an eye on the world and stay engaged and stay connected. Yeah. And and be aware, but I've also really just been retiring into myself for the first time maybe ever, and distancing myself from the online community and even friends and not out of any dark way like I'm, I'm not on a dark path at all i'm probably the most happy and content i've ever been in my life mm. but i think because i've spent my whole life djing and just being surrounded by people and being the guy that's sociable and and wants to just chat and engage and connect mm. and i was like i need to take a bit of time for me and this is a chance to do that and so I've just been revisiting all these conversations, writing them up, figuring out how I'm going to present this book. And dude, honestly, I'll wake up at about eight in the morning and I'll write from like 9 a.m. till 2 a.m. every day. And that's all I've done for like six to eight weeks. Wow. It's just like in my own, at home, writing, 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 writing. And it's been the most therapeutic, cathartic, revealing peaceful beautiful rewarding incredible experience of my life like now i know how you feel as a musician as an artist when you go into the studio to build something like the the pieces are there you look on the table and they're all there the nuts and the bolts and everything and you've got all the tools and it's just a case of building it and assembling it and then meaning begins to i don't know grow and evolve and and then you see you start to see the end payoff in sight and then it Go, I now for the first time understand this process yeah. that I've been talking to people about my whole life. Like I've always done creative things, mm. but this is the first time like a book, an album, a film. They're like the three things that are so big yeah. and they involve such complex, layered spider web. It's a tough thing, right? Tying it all together. Yeah, and it's hard when you're in the midst of it, challenge. for sure. I think, and, and I think you're going to see this when you're finally done, how much of a relief, how much of a moment you're going to be proud. But then there's going to be this little moment, and I'm letting you know, this little moment where you're going to miss you're gonna miss it, and you're going to be like, I need more of that. And it's creating an album is like that for me, you know, where like I'm in the midst of it, I'm stressed, I'm digging deep, I'm going through the, I'm putting the work in, then it's finally done, I listen to it, I'm so proud, I'm happy, I'm teary-eyed, and then I'm like, well, now what? But I'm glad you finally get to experience it, being the social butterfly that you are, if I can say that about you. Um, and how blessed are we, because I can relate to what you're saying, how blessed are we during this time of crisis, really, to be able to retreat into yourself and work on a project? That's pretty incredible and and it, ha it says a lot to do with your hustle like you you are definitely a, i respect it very much you're definitely a hustle the fact that you just were like this is what i got to do patreon page and then the book thing it all just kind of lined up you're in the right place at the right time but your mind frame you're able to switch into that survival mode thing and that's very much the artist in you which i respect as well but um yeah see i'm i'm gonna go off on a slight tangent but i i have there are no tangents in yeah. podcasts jesse that's the beauty of them <laughs> here's the thing here's the thing where, where i've been and this has been fairly recently that i've i've been like wow this is the most i've slowed down in seven or eight years and at first it was like how am i going to navigate this how am i going to pay my bills the amount of money that our band lost from canceling tours it was astounding huge tours yeah i i would i didn't i at first i'm like what am I going to do? I have no idea what I'm going to do. Um, 
and thankfully through royalties and applying for grants and all this stuff, I got through it, but or I'm getting through it, I should say. But one thing that's really struck me and, and you said it, and I want to talk about that a little more is um, being able to retreat and your perspective of what your life is and who you are in this world and how you see yourself. It was such an easy thing when you were working. It was such an easy thing when you had your podcast. It was such an easy thing when I was touring. This is stuff that it's in our wheelhouse. It's it's we're pros at this. We know how to navigate this. And then when this whole thing happened, I I saw some people just fall into really dark places. I saw some people embrace it and become creative and you know and then there's some people who are still trying to figure it out. And I think it's beautiful to hear you talk about how you were able to sort of shut your phone off and, and, and tune out and go inside. And that's been huge for me because it made me realize how much I take for granted in my life with what I have and the privileges that I have and the fact that you and I are sitting here talking and, um, you know, bills are getting paid and we're okay. Our heads are above water and we're be able to like still do what we love in, in a certain degree. Um, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I love the fact that you... You were just, you're able to adapt and change in the fact that your book became the catalyst for what you're doing and helped you survive. I would think that you having that and having a goal and something you knew you needed to do on a regular basis probably helped you survive mentally as well as maybe financially, where I feel like... Well, if, if, if I can interject there, no, please do. you kind of nailed it. Um, for me, my quote-unquote professional life is my life you know i'm single a lot of my oldest and dearest friends who i'm still eternally close to have new lives and priorities and structures now be they mortgages wives kids these adult things that i have no desire <laughs> at this stage to indulge in for me my quest my path in this world is to document stories which you've yeah. said, and I, I thank you eternally, and I'm so like happy that you get it because you're someone that I love and admire so much, and it really is just about that. It's like when we're kids and we're teenagers and we grow up, we're fascinated by these things, and I've seen all my friends, and this is no disrespect to any of them. This just happens, but most people, this is most people, they'll go through life, and you give up on the follies of youth as adulthood. Yeah. Yes. And your dreams and your passions and your creative projects fall by the wayside because life takes over. Whereas for me, I'm like, no, my life is that. My life's work is that. Yeah. My, my sense of belonging and meaning is that. And in the past, that's caused me trouble because when I've lost jobs or faced situations that are at the time irreconcilable i'm like oh my life's over but actually it's not it's just you have to find a new way to get around underneath over and that's what stood me in amazing stead for this pandemic and i don't want to take anything away from people that are genuinely struggling with this thing because this is a whole new level of weird and new but for me because i've been through a lot of hard stuff professionally personally right. emotionally psychologically spiritually physically like i've experienced every kind of pa and this isn't me doing the violin thing but i've experienced every kind of pain and torment there is a lot of it's been self-inflicted and bad decisions but a lot of it's been out of my control and i've been through the ringer 
and I'm a survivor. And so this for me is just a new obstacle and challenge for me to overcome. And it's about not just surviving, but thriving. Because otherwise, why are we here? Why do we do it? Like I thought Agreed. after I broke up with my ex-partner who I was very much in love with and I went into this kind of dark spell afterwards and it wasn't anything to do with her. It wasn't her fault. It was where I was at. I probably thought about ending my own life every day for about three years, mm. like every day every single day multiple times a day i'd be like why am i here there's no point i'm miserable fuck this world i'm out and then for some yeah. weird reason and this happened to me seven years ago when i broke my back like when i'm in these moments and these situations of the worst hardest most fucking like debilitating oh my god it's the end of the fucking world kind of shit i'm like wow this is when i come into my own i rise to that i rise to that occasion and i find in that moment my true purpose in this world and this whole lockdown period for me has been a complete rediscovery of who i am who i want to be who i can still be who i should be and i've just been on this internal which for me is so unusual because everything that I do social, whether it's interviewing, DJing, everything, but I've just been yeah. a hermit for two months. I've just been inside figuring it out. And I've, I've ironically felt less alone in the last two months than I've maybe felt in my whole entire life. And that's a lot of just because I've been reading and writing and right. that's again been my escape. But dude, I'm, I'm in the best place maybe I've ever been, which is horrible that's to incredible. say because the world's falling apart, but it's like, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta agree with you on that. I, I've pumped the brakes on a lot of things in my life, and it's really changed my perspective and made me realize a lot as well. And I think that you know, I, I've also gone through some shit myself, and I think it's adaptation. It's part of being a survivor, but it's also a part of just having the wisdom, like you said, from everything that you've been through. That you can sort of go, oh, I remember how this goes, and then you can navigate out of it. And it's different every time, but I think the more shit you go through the better you get at navigating through the shit and, and it is all uh, yeah. the same isn't it although although the circumstances and the situations are different each time it's the same basic concept which is there is an obstacle in front of me and i need to yeah. get through that yeah because you because all we can do is keep moving i'm like that anyway i can't really be static like i have i have to keep moving even yeah. if that's not necessarily a physical you know trajectory it has to sometimes maybe be mental but it's always about moving forward and keep keeping on and it's really just about how can i get to the next stage whatever that might be and it's not about chasing something it's never for me about trying to attain something like oh i need to get more uh, it's never about that it's always just like there has to be better 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 days ahead right there has to be all the time otherwise why if the best days are behind you What's, What's the, the point? point right? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I've always clung to the, the positive mental attitude, the PMA from the bad brains. It's tattooed on my leg and it's something Hell yeah. I, I live by because you're right. You, you get to that point where it's like, if you're not pushing forward, if you're not looking forward with a positive outlook, what is there to do? Why are you even pushing? And if you're not pushing, then you're better off dead, right? Yeah. So, uh, and that so sounds guess, for some people perhaps a little bit fatalistic, but it's true. And it's not meant to be dark or negative. It's meant to be positive. Like... We all die. And yeah. there's a chapter in my book that I'm calling Life and Death in the Stocks. And it's like, for me, as much, the reason I call my show Life in the Stocks is because it's me, stocks, talking to people yeah. about life. But life is it, right? Like, life is the fucking, 
the holy grail what it is we don't know but the whole experience of it is trying to figure it out and with life obviously comes death and you can't ignore or avoid that issue yeah like, it's happening we're all gonna die everybody we love will die and yeah so it's like how can we make the most and sometimes that can manifest itself in a hedonistic destructive way and that is what it is and we all go through those too but really it's just like how can we enrich and nourish this experience to its yeah. fullest potential because it ain't gonna be here forever yeah yeah man so i guess to transition into sort of uh moving forward looking at the future you've you've been locked down you've been working on your book i've been locked down <laughs> yeah you've been so you know for me like i'm looking forward to more than anything more than anything my first moment stepping out on stage to get back to doing what i love what is that moment for you is there one particular one or is there a couple like what is your mindset like once things are quote unquote back to the way they are and you can resume life that you knew what's the first thing or first couple of things that you're really looking forward to have a life affirming moment with would you say I have three answers and they're all uh, different and they're all true. And I'll start with the first funniest answer, which is I'm looking forward to getting laid, Jesse. <laughs> this, this is the worst time in human history to be single. Oh, it man. really is. It is the worst. <laughs> and I am an affectionate, physical, dare I say mm. it, sexual human being. Yeah, yeah. And I have not even touched a female's finger for the last three and a half months. Wow. So the first thing I want to do once it's kind of deemed <laughs> acceptable <laughs> and, and not detrimental to the health of others is get out there and find myself a beautiful young dame that just wants to dance the night away. Yes. So that's the first thing I'm looking forward to doing. And that's my honesty. honest, truthful it. answer. Um, the it. second thing I'm looking forward to doing is having a meal in a bustling busy restaurant yeah because the only thing which means more to me than the music and the entertainment industry and we've spoke about this between ourselves in the past is the hospitality industry bars restaurants pubs yeah. these are the communal gathering places of society for me that's where i go to fucking worship and connect and yeah and seek meaning and and those places for me are like the heart and soul of communities and neighborhoods and cities. And it's my life, man. Like, that's what I do when I'm not at home interviewing or writing. I am out eating, drinking and just experiencing these communal gathering spots, which have been the first and will be the last to return in this whole thing. So one of the things I'm the most excited about. I had my first pint of draft beer the other weekend in this takeout place in Soho. But the thing that yeah. I'm looking forward to the most is just sitting down in a restaurant surrounded by people, not concerned yeah. about social distancing and hearing COVID the laughter and, just, and the clanging of dining. Dishes. And, yeah, yeah. I love it and, too. And, man. Then, I and then that. the third and final man is fucking traveling. So at the end of yeah. July, I'm going to leave London. I'm going to pack up all my stuff. I'm going to move out. I'm going to leave all my possessions and clothes and everything at my mum's house. And I'm going to take my case with my podcast equipment, backpack with my laptop and some stuff and a suitcase with some clothes. And I'm going to go and just, I'm going to do what Samuel L. Jackson says in Pulp Fiction and uh, walk the earth. And I'm going to do that until the music industry resumes to 
quote unquote normality and tours and things yeah. are like in, oh, wow. in, in kind of full swing again. So I'm just going to tap out because there's no point in me spending 800 pounds a month to be in London to be connected to this industry that's on standby. So I'm just going to pack up and you know go spend time with friends in Switzerland and Italy and Portugal and Australia and America and so that's my first and most kind of like that's the thing that I'm most stoked for is to see the I love world, that. see friends and just you know I, I've got I'm going to do three books I'm going to do three volumes if the first one sells well the guy said he wants to do three so right. um, I'm just going to record podcasts over the phone like this on the road write record write record and just do that for a year from wherever I find myself. That's oh, that's brilliant. I love that. I love that. It's so cool, man. Dig it. Yeah. But not I before think... I get laid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if, if I may say so myself, I think that leads us to like a nice period on the sentence. I'm really looking forward to that, man. I think that uh, congratulations on the book thing. And I know it's going to do well. And I, you know, if you make it over to America, if I'm still not touring, you better hit me up and let's have some adventures together, man. That sounds like well, a know brilliant who I... thing. Do you know who I've been watching a lot of, Jesse? And it was actually really... It was a lot of people, but it was really you who introduced me to this person, Anthony Bourdain. Like, when he died, ugh, I saw ugh. tributes from everybody that I loved. Yeah. And I was like, who is this guy? A chef that, like, Blondie and Queens of the Stone Age and all these people that I've grown up listening to and loving and watching and yeah. all were, like, down with this dude and I'd somehow, like, never heard of him. And so I, I didn't discover him, sadly, until he'd already passed. But since he passed, which is almost two years ago to the day, right? I've been watching basically everything he's ever made. I've ordered his book, Kitchen Confidential. And I remember you saying to me, we spoke about him, and you were like, he brought together people from all different kinds of walks of life and cultures and backgrounds. And food wasn't even the, the common denominator, although it was. It was more about the ritual of eating and, and gathering and it's inspired me if my book does do well my next project that i want to start developing is combining the two things and it'll be like a travel book where i travel around the world and meet up with hopefully people like yourself in their neighborhoods yeah. and places interview them about our mutually shared story and connection and life but then also in the context talk about their neighborhood and their area and that will be hopefully my segue from interviewing into travel writing and then basically hopefully becoming the next anthony bourdain if anybody could even you know oh, that's, strive to be that's half, absolutely half the broadcaster that guy was that's yeah. the long-term goal for me i want to be like a travel broadcaster in the style of him that chats to like musicians artists you know pub runners waiters whoever art like whoever did you ever get that's to the, the episodes do you ever get to the episodes where he's got the little russian sidekick he brings out every once in a while <laughs> no. All right, so Not yet. you'll get to him. Uh, Yuri, I think, is his name, uh, and he's right. just—he's just in like a handful of episodes, and he's odd. He doesn't really work well with the show, but he had like this little <laughs> phase where he just was he basically enough. just poor Dane's dealer. What was the story? I don't. Yeah, I, he was a drinking buddy, and he just decided, right. oh, I'm going to bring this guy out to like help with the show. It's really funny, but it's really odd. But yeah, I'll be your I'll be your odd guy if you ever want to throw me in the mix and <laughs> <laughs> put a wrench in the gears Dude, of your show. So far beyond the sidekick. We well, I'm going to say yeah. this now. I was going to say this to you off the air, but I'm going to say this now in the show. And uh, so w when you presented the idea of doing this to me, which thank you so much, by the way, like what a humbling experience it is to have somebody who you, as in me, have looked up to and admired and connected with. Like you messaged me and you were like, dude, you should have somebody interview you. And, and 
the fact that you've taken kind of the time and, and, and had the interest and the investment enough to do that means the world to me. But when you did do that, I got to thinking and I was like, I reckon me and you and Keith Buckley should start a podcast like this where we do a three-way like WhatsApp, FaceTime, video call thing. We do it once every two weeks. The podcast is called uh, Stoke the Fire Podcast. It's about keeping the fire stoked. Yes. And all we do, and all we do is sit around like Joe Strummer used to do at Glastonbury, sit around as if we were by the campfire and just talk about stories and memories and experiences. I love it. I love it. And set the world to right, but to try and keep that communal connection thing going. Um, I had this idea. I was like, this. I think it's called Stoke the Fire. Yeah, the Stoke the Fire podcast, trying to keep the fires stoked. And that's our role as uh, champions of this kind of scene. I hate calling it a scene, but let's call it that. But just the world. Yeah, you had me at Joe Strummer and fire. <laughs> yeah, that's what one. do you reckon we should talk? I, I'm into that. I'm totally into that, man. Absolutely. And um, that's it's funny you say fire, too, because that's the one thing I love more than anything about living up here is sitting around a fire. And recently we've had, you know, with social distancing and all that, we've had people up and we've done that where we sit around the fire and we tell our stories and people, how they've gotten through it and what's going on in their minds. I think that's a brilliant idea. That's a great idea. Cause it, it really harkens back to our ancestors. Like the, the, the core of all of us, we all come from tribes. We all come from people who sat around a fire at night and told stories and, that's how our history started. So I think it's brilliant. That's a great idea. I'm in. We, we, we need to do it. And then, because we are obviously, again, I'm going to put it in the air. Maybe we'll take it out, but we're in the air. Um, we were obviously talking just before lockdown about doing a kind of a double headliner Q&A tour with yeah, me yeah. hosting and, and you, Anki. So this could be the thing that perfectly builds that. Yeah, I love it. You know, we, we need it. to make it happen because it's our, it's our duty, dude, to keep those fires stoked. <laughs> I agree. And I agree. You know, and it's funny because, you know, little things change people's perspective. And in the midst of something that may just be a simple conversation to us, that may spark somebody out there that may hear that and it'll change their whole perspective on, on arts and culture and music and the importance of what we do in society, uh, someone who presents art and culture, someone who is an artist in their own right, but also interacts with, with arts and culture. It, it's been something that I find, especially music, is something that's taken for granted so much. And I think that, you know, music is a soundtrack to all of our lives, but, you know, the way that we're compensated for it has changed so much with the downloading and all that. And it just really reeks to me of people taking it for granted. And my hope is through music and through culture and through talking about these things that people realize how important it is to have music and to have specific types of culture, stay alive, stay relevant and be in the forefront of people's minds. Because the moment we lose sight of that, the easier we are to be manipulated by governments and by mainstream media and all these things that are telling us what we should think and how we should act. And you have the counterculture underneath it Punk rock, for example, for me, was always that voice of, you don't have to think that way. And if you don't think that way, it's okay. And you sort of find your tribe. And I think it's really important to keep that alive and to let the outcasts and the people who think differently know that you are not alone. And that's the culture, the counterculture that saved my life many times. And that's important to keep that alive. It ties into mental health. It ties into everything, the fabric of our lives. And that's super important. That's something I strive to do with my lyrics social media, et cetera. So I 
that's a brilliant idea. And I think we're all doing it in our own way, but to have us all come together, that, yeah, that's a great Love idea. You, I Love you, man. That was great. That was fun. I have so much love for that man. What a lovely, lovely man he is. Jesse Leach right there interviewing me. The shoes were on the other feet for this episode. And I want to say a huge thank you to Jesse for for taking the time to do it, but also for being interested and invested in me enough to want to do it and having the thought to do it in the first place. And it was such a thrill and an honor and a very humbling experience to be the other side of the chair for once and and to be grilled as it were. It wasn't being grilled at all. It was a lovely chat, but yeah, it was nice being interviewed um, by somebody that I respect and and love very dearly. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, Hopefully now you'll realize how much I rein it in when I have a guest on the show as well. Whenever I'm the guest, I do tend to get pretty chatty and sometimes it's hard to rein me in because my thoughts are just spilling out a thousand miles an hour. Um, What a nice note to end on as well. This idea that I've been toying with for a while and I want to just get my book finished first. And then once that's done, I do want to investigate this idea of starting a podcast with Keith and Jesse called the Stoke the Fire podcast, where we sit around, maybe it's every two weeks, and we talk about tour stories and music and our lives and the world, and and just keep that kind of oral tradition alive where, you know, you've got people sat around the campfire sharing stories, talking about life and art and philosophy and just the world and the experience of being alive. I feel like right now, I know I need it. And I feel like the music community could benefit from it. It's something we could evolve over time, even as lockdown is lifted and the world resumes to normality. It's a show we could continue into, quote unquote, the real world again and get all kinds of guests on, do on location broadcasts. There's so many amazing ideas that I'm cooking up. And just a few months ago, before lockdown hit, I was in conversations with both Keith and Jesse about doing a doubleheader live Q&A tour at some point. Um, I've obviously done individual live Q&As with the pair of them. If you've been to one of those, you'll know what the night entails. It's kind of a very informal, intimate affair. I sit down on stage, chat to the guest. In this case, it would be the guest, sir, the pair of them together. And then I was thinking maybe I'd get off the stage, leave Keith and Jesse to talk for a bit between themselves whilst they're doing that I'll go around the room and get questions from everybody or we'll have like a ballot box on the bar and people can write their questions and put them in there I'll go through them pick out the best ones and then come back on stage and then we do like an audience Q&A with the crowd questions at the end and then photos and signings and have a hangout and maybe like a DJ set somewhere with the three of us after that as well a whole evening with experience with the pair of them Um, it's something I would love to do once shows are allowed again and i feel like this podcast could be the perfect segue into that so there we go at this stage i'm just thinking out loud but i want to do that because i want to put these ideas into the world to try and will this thing 
into being jesse and keith i'm talking to you let's make it happen i think it would be amazing then we could get other guests on as it evolves and grows as well um so yeah you've heard enough from me i think <laughs> for one day so i'm gonna i'm gonna duck out now and love you and leave you but thank you again to jesse thank you to you for tuning in and i'll be back next week with another guest business as usual but i do hope you endure, uh, enjoyed i was about to say i do hope you endured <laughs> maybe you did uh, i hope you enjoyed this little you know sidestep uh, experiment episode and um, yeah maybe we'll do that again in another hundred or so episodes time um thank you for tuning in do stay safe do stay well stay sane stay happy and uh, and take care of each other out there see you soon cheers even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 